Father God, thank you for, for today. Uh, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for an opportunity to gather in this space. Uh, God, we, we realize that in each of our lives, in different ways, you're moving, that you're encouraging us all to take next steps, whether it be uh, listening to a Bible study on the way to work, uh, which, can, we, which can change the way that we perceive Scripture and who you are, whether it be uh, in increasing in our prayer life or in our, our, our giving or caring for other people, whatever it might be, Lord, you're calling each of us to, to just take one step towards you. And this Advent season, Lord, we pray that, that you make it clear to all of us uh, what kind of people you want us to be, what areas of our life are holding us back, are keeping us from flourishing in the way that you designed us and created us to flourish, uh, what, what, what things that in our life that we could get rid of to, to be more free and more, more full of, of the kind of life that you desire for us. God, we, courage, we, we pray that you give each of us the, the courage and the, the wisdom to know what those next, next steps look like. Lord, as we approach your scripture, as we actually look at uh, uh, the overarching story of, of scripture, Lord, we pray that you, that you give us insight and wisdom today, that you meet each of us where we are uh, with, with the joys or concerns or convictions that we have in our hearts so that uh, we leave this place uh, more deeply in love with you, with a deeper understanding of who you are and how you've moved through history uh, and what our role and part is in that story. We thank you for who you are. For, for coming at Christmas, for dying at Easter, for, for resurrecting and giving us that new life. Amen. All right, so we, uh, we have made it to the final series in Matthew, which is crazy to think about when we started way back last December and said we were going to spend an entire year in Matthew. We've done that. And now we are in what we're calling beginnings and endings, which is the, 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 the close uh, of, uh, of the book of Matthew. Um, it's going to be an interesting year this year. It actually, as from a pastoral perspective, it's, it's a lot of fun because um, there are two times a year as a pastor it's really hard to write new sermons, and in, those are Christmas and Easter uh, because uh, you, they come every year and you've run out of new and interesting things to say, uh, which may be the case this time too, we'll see, but hopefully we can do it a little bit different. Uh, because what, we're going to be, what we start this week is actually going to be starting a series in which we do Easter for Christmas. So we're going to look at, at, uh, at Christmas through the lens of the resurrection, through the lens of Easter. Uh, it's how the book of Matthew ends. The book of Matthew ends, obviously, with the crucifixion and resurrection, and we're ending the book of Matthew during Christmas time. So we'll play those things with each other. At the same time, I'm really excited about how we get to do that, because what we're going to end up seeing as we look through, as the themes that run through uh, both Christmas and Easter, actually, as we look through the themes that run all through Scripture, you'll see that Matthew is super intentional about the way that he talks about Easter, that there are themes that run through that connect them all together, that'll connect us back to Jesus' baptism, that'll connect us to his birth, that'll connect us back to Abraham and Isaac, it'll connect us back to Moses and Genesis, as we'll see this week today. That Matthew is intentional about bringing all of those things together, both the end of the story of, well, the new beginning of the story at the resurrection, but also tying it back to the very beginning of all things. So we're going to slowly walk through the last little bit here of Matthew. Actually, for the, the, to this week and the month of December, um, so far through Matthew, Matthew is interesting because the first three years of Jesus' life go really fast in the beginning of Matthew. Then the last week goes slowly, and now we're going to go even more slowly as we look at the last 48 hours of Jesus' life on earth. So uh, 
let's get started. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to start in Matthew 26, and we'll be all over the place in the Bible today. So it'll be on the screen, but I'll hopefully I can cue it up really well too. Matthew 26, 17 is where we are today. Which is on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go to the city, a certain, uh, to a certain man, and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared for the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me, or bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him to have not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So our journey through the last 48 hours of Jesus' life begins here, at the, at the Passover table. Now, when you think of the Passover table, my guess is many of you have a picture in your mind of what the Passover table might have looked like. Uh, it probably looks a little bit like this, right? Probably you've seen this picture before, right? Leonardo da Vinci did a good job with it. Um, I mean, with painting it, I mean, with actual accuracy of this depiction is awful, um, right? This is not uh, what the Passover table would have looked like at all. Actually, if you even slow down to think about it for a second, you'd realize how weird um, that picture actually is. Like, imagine going to an olive garden and saying, hey, I've got uh, a party of 26. And they're like, you're going to have 26 people show up? No, 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 just half of that. We're just all going to sit on one side of the table, right? Like, it's a... It's a weird thing, right? You don't go to, you don't go to a meal uh, and all sit on the same side of the table. Um, so that's, yeah. Uh, that wouldn't have been what it looked like at all. And we'll talk a little bit more, um, more about what it actually would have looked like in just a second. But the point of, of starting that way is what we saw last series as well, that we can often become familiar with particular ideas, uh, so much so that we don't think about them anymore, and we just kind of become numb to, to, to them and, and don't reflect on, on some of the weird things that might be in a particular passage, right? For instance, communion. We do communion here once a month. Today is actually a bonus communion, so we'll still do it two weeks from now. Uh, just we figured if you're going to talk Lord's Supper, we should, we should do it, right? So we're gonna, we'll do it at the end as a bonus. Um, but uh, it's one of those things that we... That we that we've done, we do often, but, but if we actually start to think about the words that Jesus spoke about it in the passage we read today, we realize a few things. We realize that, that, that if we weren't familiar with it, what did Jesus say? He said, this is bread. This bread is my body. I want you to eat my body. That's a weird thing to say, right? Let's just be honest about that. We might have been familiar with it, but it is a strange thing to say. Actually, 
Members of the early church were accused by Romans of being cannibals because they t- believed that they took it literally, right? That they were actually eating human flesh. It's a weird thing to say. So what, is, what are we doing with that? When he doesn't stop there either, he says, hey, here's some wine. Uh, that's my blood. I want you to drink that. So I want you to eat my flesh and I want you to drink my blood. And we go for communion. Cool, we're doing it because it's grape juice and bread, right? But it is a weird thing to say. So what is going on here? What's Jesus doing? But that's only the first little bit of kind of some of the strange things that we see in this story. If you were a Jewish person, the story would be strange because Jesus has just changed Passover. It's a practice they've been doing for 1,500 years, the exact same way the whole time, and Jesus just changed it. Can he do that? Is that okay? Not even to mention, what's the deal with Judas? through the midst of all of this. So let's spend a little bit of time with those details, which will be the theme through the series. We're going to see these little details weave their way through. But in order for us to begin to tackle this passage, we need to go back, way back actually, all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis, back to creation. The beginning of the Bible says, in the beginning we have this story of creation. We have the beginning of humanity. What we see right away at the beginning of the Bible is that God creates the world, and then he places Adam and Eve into this garden paradise in the midst of this this created world. And he tells them, uh, he gives them a command right out of the gate, and it's not just don't eat from the tree. He actually says to Adam and Eve, I want you to rule over, over the land that I've given you. I want you to subdue it or cultivate it. I want you to do things with it, garden, change things, make it look beautiful. And I want you to be multiply and fill the whole I want you to multiply and fill the whole earth. So the idea is that God has created this garden paradise. Then he tasks Adam and Eve to make it even more beautiful than it already was, and then to take that beauty and spread it across the world. That's the mission that God gives Adam and Eve pre-fall. Now, we also see that in the midst of that mission, the goal then was to have God actually walk and do it with them. In in the book of Genesis, it talks about how Adam used to walk with God in the cool of the day. So them together, we're going to take this beautiful created paradise, Eden we call it, and spread it out into the rest of the world. Essentially, spread heaven into all of these different components of the world. The garden starts small, and spreads across the earth. Take the perfect place that God made, give it your touch, and grow it across the world. God and humans together, changing things for the better. Continually expanding life, continually expanding beauty. That was the way things were supposed to be. But as we all know, it's not the way things are. Right away in Genesis 3, sin enters the story. We wanted to be the gods of our own lives. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we talked about hell. Brent, or Brent, wow, no, brokenness. I guess maybe those are synonyms. Um, (laughs) Brokenness enters into us and our relationship with God, but it also enters into the created world as well. And in creation, which is exactly... What God warned us would happen. He says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you'll surely die. Now, we've talked about this here before, that God's reaction to Adam and Eve not doing the thing that they said is, is, is remarkable. 
Because he would have been completely just and right to say, hey, I warned you what was going to happen. You didn't do what I asked you to do, and so you're done. We're going to wipe it all out and start over. That would have been a fine thing for God to do, but he doesn't do that at all. Even though the beautiful creation that he had built for us to help expand across the world was just broken by the very creatures he created, he decides that the, the, the path forward is not going to be to wipe it all out and start over. He said, decides the path forward right away in Genesis 3 is to partner with humanity to begin to put those pieces back together. God says to Adam and Eve, says to humanity, you guys broke it. And so we can't do the garden in the way that we wanted to, but you and I are going to fix this thing. We're going to put it back together. In other words, humanity will work to restore Eden, or as we've been saying through the book of Matthew, to bring the kingdom to earth. You see it throughout Jesus' preaching. That same mission has been throughout the book of Matthew in that way. Now, there are a lot of details and a lot of rabbit holes we could go down in this particular spot. But but for what I want you to take away from the beginning uh, is that last point. Right away from Genesis 3-4, the story of the Bible is about God coming alongside of us, alongside of humanity, to work to put the broken pieces of the world back together, to work together to restore Eden. Tracking? That's where we are at the beginning. And so the story moves forward. Fast forward a little to the story of Noah, which is kind of like a reset button to, to, to try to give a new chance at this, at the, um, at, the, at, the, at the created order thing. We move from Noah to Abraham, which we've talked about a lot here, in which God meets Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you in a special way. But then with that blessing, I need you to bless the rest of the world. I've often called it the Spider-Man Clause of the Bible. Hopefully you'll eventually start to remember that or I'll have to give it up. But with great power comes great responsibility, right? I will bless you in a special way, and you better use that power and and then blessing that I've given you to bless other people, right? It's still about restoring the relationship between God and humanity. But our story today dealt with Passover, which is where I want to focus. Passover is a huge deal to the Jewish, uh, Jewish people, uh, there, and there are a whole bunch of traditions associated with it. It would be great just to do one sermon only on how the Passover meal works, but there's a lot of different details and parts to that, and we're not going to do that this morning. Um, it's a lot like Christmas. There was a lot of extra things that got added into it too, right? You, you traveled, you decorated, you prepared, you did all the stuff for Passover. It was a foundational, foundational part of any Jewish person's faith life. But the central story of Passover is what gave it its importance in the Jewish mindset. Passover, if you're not familiar with the story, is after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Israel goes to live in Egypt. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph, right? They go there, and you had the the coat first, but then he gets sold to Egypt, and then his buddies come, and there's a famine, or his brothers come, there's a famine, and they end up living there uh, because uh, of Joseph's, Joseph's dreams. If you fast forward a little bit beyond that, you realize, though, they move from the time of Joseph to become slaves in Egypt. It's the story of Moses. When Moses comes back, goes to Pharaoh, says, Let's my, let my people go. You have the, 12 pla- or the, 12, the 10 plagues uh, in Egypt, uh, culminating with the final plague. God's final act of liberation for Israel in Egypt begins uh, 
well, it begins, uh, sorry, um, the, the final, first, the final plague in Egypt is, the, is God's taking the firstborn sons of, of all the people in Egypt that don't um, put the blood of the land over their doorpost. In other words, the, the, God's final act of liberation for Israel in Egypt begins with the sacrifice of a lamb. Why a lamb? God tells the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb because lambs are sacred in Egypt. So to show that they, what you want to leave Egypt, sacrifice the sacred, sacred animal and put its blood on your doorpost as a way of saying that we trust God's telling of this story more than we do Pharaoh's. One of the things, if you ever study the ten plagues uh, in Egypt, what you realize is that each, of one, each one of them is targeted towards an Egyptian god. Egyptian had, the Egyptians had a, a vast pantheon, each of which... Each of those gods controlled a different aspect of something, right? Like you, uh, Ra's the sun, and you've got all, you have the god of the Nile, and you, all of those different things. And, so, and culminating in with the fact that Pharaoh himself declared himself to be God. And so the final act here is, is God asking the Israelites, do you trust that I am more powerful than all of Egypt or not? And you display that with the sacrificing of a lamb. Now pay attention as we move forward through the rest of these weeks. The theme of lamb is going to be pulled throughout all of Matthew here. Uh, right? The lamb had to be perfect. It had to be inspected. It had to be killed a certain way. There's a meal associated with it. And we're going to look at a lot of those things because that theme runs through Matthew. But for, day, for today, what I want you to take away is this. That this moment, this act, the, the leaving of Egypt, this, this final plague in Egypt, is monumental in the story of Israel. The Exodus is a funda- is fundamentally central theme to the rest of Scripture moving forward. God meets his people inside of the brokenness of the world, blessing, it with, blessing them with his presence and power, freeing them from bondage and inviting them into a different kind of life. When we're talking about Passover, that's what we're talking about. Israel is slaves in Egypt, powerless, God shows up and meets them in that brokenness with his power and might, freeing them from that bondage, the bondage of the broken world, into this new invitation to be something different. And that something different isn't isn't insignificant either. I've mentioned this a number of times, but I want to take an actual close look at it. What God calls Israel to out of Egypt is to be a different kind of nation in the world. One that's going to show who God is to the rest of the world in actually tangible and literal ways. We talked about how the mission at the beginning was that humanity would join God to spread Eden across the earth. After the fall, we talked about how God calls us back together to to restore and recreate Eden on earth. Look at the promises of Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 and beyond. God says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. If you read Genesis 3, what's the very first thing that happens after the fall? God says, now you will greatly increase your pain in childbirth. What do we have here? We have the fruit of the room being turned back. He says, now there are going to be thorns and thistles when you garden. 
What do we have here? We have crops coming abundantly. Your basket and your kneading through will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and everything you, you put your hand to. Again, work the, to- the soil, but now there'll be a blessing on The Lord your God will bless you in the land that he's giving you. And then this final line. The Lord will establish you as a holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. Now that fear is, can easily be misinterpreted as terror, but that's not what it is. This is a fear and reverence. They'll look at you and go, what in the world is happening there? The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity and the fruit of your womb and the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground and the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his body, and send rain on your land in season and to bless the works of your hands. And it goes on for a little bit further than that. The point that I want us all to see here is how the blessings uh, that in this particular passage are in direct contrast to the curse of Genesis 3. Essentially what God is saying is that if you follow me in the land that I'm going to give you, we will restore Eden in Israel. You see that? That it will be a place that the rest of the world will not be able to ignore because you're going to have rain in season. You're going to never lose a battle. Your crops are going to grow. Your animals are going to grow. That, you, that people will see you and realize that God is with you in a special kind of way and be in reverent fear of you. And, and ultimately goes on to say, and will be, like, you will become a light on a hill attracting the world to you. The mission of Israel was always to follow God, to create this new kind of Eden, to draw the entire world to them so that they could say, what's happening in Israel? We've got this God thing. Come join us in the midst of it. It's the mission of Adam and Eve post-fall. It's the mission of Abraham. It's the mission of Israel. That in each of these spaces, God is saying, I want to be with you in a special way. And with that comes special blessing. And out of that then comes blessing for people around you. So the Passover then marks the beginning of this mission expressed through Israel. If Israel does what they're calling to do, Eden is restored and the world is changed forever. And so Passover serves as a yearly reminder of God's promises, right? The power that he has to even beat the most powerful gods on earth in Egypt in this particular case. So Passover serves as a powerful reminder of God's power and presence to meet them in in their weakest moment, in their brokenness. But it's also a constant reminder of the task that God has given them now to take that blessing and bless the rest of the world. So back to Passover then. So we've already showed the picture of Leonardo da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper. We also already said that Passover didn't look like that, right? We see that even in the book of Matthew. Because if we look at Matthew again, Matthew 26, 20. So then evening came, and Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. The table we saw there isn't a reclining table. That would be awkward, Right? So a few details are important here. First, and maybe not everybody gets tripped up on this like, like I do, uh, but have you ever wondered how they could be celebrating Passover um, at night on Thursday and also how Jesus was crucified on Passover on Friday? Ever wondered how that happened? 
I don't know, maybe none of you are all like, no, no one ever thinks about that, Brent, you're weird. Well, anyway, it's, it's actually, it's actually a, a kind of an easy explanation. Um, in case you were wondering, now I have to finish it out. Uh, in our minds, in our minds, we change days at an arbitrary weird hour at night, right? So like in the middle of the night at midnight, we flip from one day to another. That's how we do it. Um, actually, most ancient cultures did it far more intuitively, right? When does the day end? When the sun goes down. Right? That's when a new day starts. Even in Genesis, there was evening and there was morning the third day. Right? Your, your marker, you still in Jewish time actually, uh, your marker of a new day starts when the sun goes down. So your, day, your old day ends and your new day starts when the sun goes down. So it's, the Bible tells us it's evening here. Passover has begun. Right? It's a new day. Uh, Passover continues until sundown the next day. So that's why Jesus could both celebrate Passover here, and be crucified on Passover because that 24-hour block is from sundown to sundown. Anyway, now you know a thing. Um, doesn't actually have a lot to what we're talking about today except for explaining that little sentence. So anyway. But Matthew also tells us that they're reclining at the table. Right? In medieval art, we usually see elevated tables like the one in Leonardo da Vinci's uh, picture. But in Israel at this time, that's not the kind of table they would have used at all. They would have used a low U-shaped table uh, called a tricilium, maybe, uh, with a kind of like a couch chair. It wasn't that couch like you're thinking, but like cushions that would have surrounded it. And you would have eaten while reclining, while laying down. Uh, it was pretty, it's pretty common. Actually, you can still find them in different places around the world now. Now, there are a couple interesting things in this passage that we know from that table setup as well. Uh, one is that that we know the seating arrangements. We actually get some insight into that from Luke. Um, we know that John uh, was in the seat right to Jesus, right of Jesus, which is an honor seat. So John gets to sit in that particular space. We actually know that Peter was sitting in the servant's seat, which is a weird space for him to be. Uh, actually, uh, if you read the story in the book of Luke, they, they designate both John, who is the youngest of the disciples, uh, and Pete being in the seat of honor, and we, we, they designate Peter being in the servant's seat. And then right after that, you, if you remember in the story of Luke, the disciples have an argument about who's the greatest. Remember that one? Um, it starts to give you insight into why when you realize how Jesus did the seating arrangements. Peter probably felt a little bit slighted because he was the leader of the disciples and the oldest. To be in the servant's seat is a, something that would have been beneath him. Uh, John probably felt awesome because uh, he's the youngest and probably wouldn't normally be there. But there's a third twist as well, because we have one other seat of honor, which would have been on the left of Jesus, and we know who is sitting there too. And it probably isn't who you're thinking, because it was Judas. The fact that Jesus would say, the one who dipped his hand into the bowl with me lets us know where Judas was sitting. That's why Judas goes, not me. Goes, ah, yeah, you. So you have Judas in the seat of one honor, you have John in the other, and, and Peter uh, at the, um, at the, at, in the servant's seat. So all of a sudden, the dispute, dispute over who's the greatest makes more sense. I mean, it's still, they're still kind of being turds, but at the same time, like, you get it, right? A little bit better, I guess. So I bring that up, though, uh, because we're going to get back to Judas. Don't forget that he is sitting in an honor seat here. But the story goes like this, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, for this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is the blood of my covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on, now on until the day when I drink it new and with my father, in my father's kingdom. See, this moment is so, so important because Jesus changes a 1,500-year-old liturgy. For 1,500 years, the Jews have been celebrating Passover. For 1,500 years, they've been celebrating Passover in the exact same way with the exact same liturgy, remembering the exact same things. They've been, they've been performing it, as we've already said, to remember the moment in which God freed them from slavery and invited them into the kingdom work that he had for them. We even see in Deuteronomy that's exactly what God says that they ought to tell their young people. In the future, when your son asks, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God has commanded? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders and great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. So by changing up this liturgy, Jesus is making a massive statement. Like we said, for 1,500 years, Israel celebrated God freeing them from bondage in Egypt. For 1,500 years, they celebrated freedom from that bondage. But for 1,500 years, so often they missed the completeness of the big picture. Because notice the language in Deuteronomy. When your son asks you, why do we do all of this? What, do you, what should you tell them? And the response is, tell him that we were slaves in Egypt. There's an important ownership that's supposed to come every time you retell this story. Because he doesn't say they, right? They were slaves in Egypt. This isn't something that's supposed to stay disconnected into the past. That statement alone is supposed to bring it right up into the present. We were slaves in Egypt. We needed to remember who we were and how, God, how powerfully God moved us out of that space. They were supposed to stay humble in the story, to realize that they had been blessed in order to be a blessing. They were freed from Egypt to join God in the kingdom work he wanted to do for the whole world. But as we see in Israel's history, so often they lost sight of that bigger picture. So often instead, it became about them. They were blessed and they became, as Jesus says, puffed up. They thought they were more important than they ought to have. And so what we see in the New Testament, unfortunately out throughout the Old Testament too, then it becomes about them. So what we see in the temple. We looked at it just a few months ago, about a month ago, when we saw Jesus walk into the temple and he sees that the structure that was supposed to be bringing people towards God had become one that exploited them. We see it when Jesus curses the fig tree that you were supposed to be producing fruit that people could have and you're not. I'd actually would argue, and not everyone would agree on this one, but I'd still argue that's exactly what we see happen to Judas. I think Judas is fascinating in Scripture. And I actually think he's unfortunately more relatable than we think. Depending how you've ever seen Judas depicted before, far too often we see him as kind of like this dark, evil person that stands in the corner. If you've ever seen like any kind of depiction of Judas in a show or something like that, right? He kind of, is always, he's got a dark beard and he's kind of shady looking and he kind of sits in the shadows. But I would argue that's not what we see in Scripture at all. We mentioned it earlier. Who's sitting in the seat of honor? It's Judas. 
Even though Jesus knows he's going to betray him, he still says, I love you so much, you can sit next to me. Jesus doesn't see him as fundamentally evil. He says what he's going to do is going to be bad for him, and that's true. But we also see the disciples don't think he's evil either, right? It's interesting. That night, Jesus actually says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And if he really did have the horns, like you see him depicted sometimes, they go, God, we knew it was Judas. Those horns are so weird. Like, obviously, he's evil, right? <laughs> but they don't do that, do they? Nobody looks at Judas and goes, that's obviously the guy who's going to do it. He even leaves that night. So Jesus says, tonight somebody is going to betray me, and he leaves. And what does the Bible say the disciples thought he was going to do? They assumed he was going to give money to the poor. Right? The disciples don't think Jesus, or Judas is an evil person either. They trusted him. They actually let him carry the money pouch, which in that day and age is a lot of trust because you don't have a bank. You have a pouch filled with actual money, which means if he tries to run, you have no more money. Right? You don't give that to somebody you don't trust. I would argue all day that Judas isn't fundamentally an evil person, but someone who's lost sight of the bigger picture, who's lost sight of where, where this whole thing was supposed to go. There are a couple different theories on why Judas does what he does, and we don't know for sure. The first theory is that Judas became greedy, that he started to only think about himself in the midst of this whole thing. In the book of John, it says that Judas used to steal coins off the top of the coin purse. Some people argue that greed made him that way, and after, a slow, and, I, and after a slow progression down that space, he lost sight of who Jesus was. It's possible. Others would argue that actually what he's trying to do here is incite the revolution. They would argue that it wasn't about him, that he actually, actually thought that if he could press Jesus into a situation, he would be forced to fight. Right? That's why a couple people even had swords when they were out there, right? Okay, so Jesus keeps doing this thing way too slowly for me. We need to get Rome out of here. And so if I bring Rome to him, he has to fight. Maybe. Either way, Judas loses sight of what Jesus is actually trying to accomplish. And we actually see later on, which I think is the final argument for Judas not being a terrible person, that when his eyes are open, he's devastated. My heart breaks for Judas. He had a like, preconceived idea of what was going to happen, whether it was because he was blinded by greed or that he, a sin had gotten hold of him or whether he was trying to incite a revolution. When he sees that Jesus is arrested and is going to be killed, the Bible says his eyes are opened and he's devastated. Someone who's purely evil sells someone out and then goes and has a nap. Judas sees what happens to Jesus and he actually completely freaks out. And I would argue what he does is, is also another, more evidence of him still being a good person down at his core. Where does he go? He goes immediately back to the temple, doesn't he? If you're living in a world pre-Jesus, where do you go to be made right with God? You go to the temple, right? It's only after the temple says, we don't, you're not going to find any relief here that he goes on to do what he does next. I would argue that betrayal of Judas is not that much worse than what Peter does in just a few story sentences or a few chapters later. See, Jesus is trying to show his disciples something amazing. He's trying to show them that there's a new monumental movement in the history of God's interaction with humanity. 
He's trying to show them that a new era, a new testament, if you will, is about to begin. And in this new era, the mission remains the same. Like the lamb in Exodus was the symbol of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus, who we're going to see over the next few weeks, is the lamb that gives himself to us to free us from the slavery of sin. So that, just like Israel was freed from Egypt so that they can be the kind of place that attracts the whole world back to God, to restore Eden in that way, Jesus is the lamb given for sin so that we can begin to partner with God to bring the kingdom of God here to earth. To, in whatever ways that we can, through the indwelling of the Spirit, recreate Eden to the best of our ability with God working through us. If you ever look at what the miracles that Jesus does while he's alive on earth or the disciples do afterwards, it's what they do is restore Eden. What does Jesus do? He heals the sick. He helps restore the relationship between us and creation. He calms storms. He teaches us who God is so we can be close to him again. He teaches us how to care with each other. What Jesus is doing is while he, while he is on earth is working to restore Eden. And then says to his disciples, you're going to go and do even greater things than I did. And he gives that mission then to the church. See, the big picture matters here. When we, when we were slaves, God rescued it and empowered uh, Israel, Israel to change the world. Which mirrors language Paul uses in Romans 5 verse 6. Which says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the story of Exodus at the Passover, they were, that you had a group of Israelites who were slaves in Egypt. They were powerless, and God's power was on display to free them from that space to change the world. At Easter... And at Christmas, while we were still powerless in this world, Christ dies to us to, for us to empower us to do the same. To join him in the mission of recreating as best to our ability through his power in us, even here on earth. Persisting through to eternity. The story begins in Genesis 3 that moves to Abraham, Moses, and Israel. The story of God joining with us to work together to restore the brokenness in creation. And it continues in Jesus, empowered, er, who then empowers the church to carry it out. We see that beautifully in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, in which Peter says to the church, but you are a chosen people, which is language always reserved for Israel before this moment. You're a royal priesthood, which again, language reserved for Israel, a holy nation, Again, language just restored for, or reserved for Israel. God's special possession, for what? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In case you were wondering if it's about the church, it is. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among your communities. Pagans would just be, that's just an expression of that. So, so such good lives amongst your neighbors that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. It's clear in 1 Peter 2 here that the mission that was given for Israel has now been passed to the church. Israel was called the chosen people. Now the church is called the chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
all of that language is to say, what do priests do? The priests represent God to the world. The holy nation of Israel was supposed to put God on display. He says, church, now you do that. He says, live such good lives amongst your communities that people can't help but notice that something's different and be attracted to it. Through this season, we're going to be walking through Easter for Christmas, which admittedly seems weird at first, but hopefully you can begin to see that the stories are the same. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus coming to earth to meet us while we were still powerless, to break the bonds of sin in our life and to empower us to join him in that mission. While he walks among us, he calls 12 to do it with him. After the resurrection, we see that the Spirit then is poured out on everyone and we're all called into that mission. But I think doing this series in the midst of Christmas has another benefit as well. In this story here, we see that throughout the Israel's history, they kind of lost sight on what the bigger picture was. We see it in Judas's life that when he lost sight of what the bigger picture was, things get weird quickly. That all of a sudden, the mission that they were on either becomes about them or gets twisted in one way or another. And I think for this season, that same kind of distraction, that same kind of loss of bigger picture can be present on Christmas as well. As all of you know, and we say it every year, Christmas is such a busy season filled with so many wonderful things, but also so many distractions to keep us from focusing on the bigger picture, right? We can get caught up in all of the family dynamics that we've got coming up, either just finished last week for Thanksgiving or have coming up again for Christmas. We can get caught up in gift giving or in Christmas music, which, there's, which is just like the five things on repeat until your mind goes numb. Just kidding, that was supposed to be a joke. We can, get caught up in, we can get caught up in all of these different aspects and instead, and in the midst of all of that, miss uh, what we're actually doing here. Miss the fact that the point of gathering in this space is, is, is the same mission that God's been on since Genesis 3, that we have been blessed to be a blessing, that we have the spirit in us to work to change this world for the better. And so the challenge then, as we leave this week, it's one that I've been wrestling with now for three weeks, um, and I'll explain why in just a second, is what are we going to do about that? That we've been given a mission to, to work together to change this world to look a little bit more like Eden than it does like the hellish things we saw a few weeks ago. The first challenge comes to us as a church. We clearly see in 1 Peter here that that mission has been given to the church. A couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were in our men's, uh, men's group that meets here on Thursday nights at 7. Feel free to join us. It's great. And in that space, we have been talking about how do we create a space on mission for the community around us. We live in this neighborhood here, which is one of the more racially diverse communities in Granville. How do we mirror that in this space? There are parts of this neighborhood here who are some of the more socially, uh, that, would, that, have, that have more economic struggles than other places in Granville. How do we meet those people where they are? We had talked for weeks about what that all looks like, and, and there's a lot, I, I mean, it was fantastic how much passion there is for us blessing the, this community around us. In particular, if you were here for our trunk or treat, when we had a thousand people lined up out here of all different colors and all different backgrounds. 
And so three weeks ago, we were, we were talking about it again, which was, is, in some ways is really good. And, and two, two people there um, asked, well, one asked a really, really powerful question, just uh, what are the barriers? Why haven't we done that yet? Uh, which was a great, great question. And then somebody stood up and just went, hey, we've been talking about this for four weeks. When are we going to actually do something? It was like, oh, it's a hard challenge. Like, we can keep talking about this over and over and over again. We can keep realizing there's a bigger picture out there, but what are we going to do? Because it feels like we better do something. Which has been a challenge that I've been wrestling with since then. As a group, we committed to pray over doing something. We had a bunch of ideas we threw out, and luckily, uh, some wise heads say, hey, listen, if we're going to do something, we've got to do it, we've got to commit to it all in. Because one of the things that we know about the demographics in Granville is that there aren't a lot of people who've never heard the name Jesus before. You walk in one, too far in one direction or the other, and you're going to hit a church, right? So there aren't a lot of people who have no concept of who this Jesus person is, but there are a whole bunch of them who have a hurt concept of who he is, Right? who've interacted with church in one way or another and, and are not interested in interacting again. We saw some of that with the collective downtown, but we see it in this community as well. So the challenge was, if we're going to do something, we better follow it through, or all we're going to do is fulfill people's preconceived ideas. And so our men's group right now is committed to praying over what that looks like, what that, what, whether it's going to be in that small group community, what are we going to do about it, or whether we end up doing it collectively, but we don't know yet. I would encourage you to join us in that prayerful consideration. What as Harbor Life do we do to not lose sight of the bigger mission that we're on? We gather here to, to encourage and support each other, but if, we're, but if we lose sight of the, that encouragement being for the rest of the world, we're doing something incredibly wrong. So join us in praying over what that looks like. What do we do as a church? We know where some of the needs are. What do we do about it? But it's bigger than that, too. Because we rec or it actually can get smaller than that as well. We recognize that we can lose sight of the bigger picture as families, too. That we're, that, that we call, that we're called as family units to be blessings to the world in small and impactful ways. So I encourage you to pray over that, too. If that, that you've been called into mission to make your family's units look more like Eden. And what are you doing about that? But it works individually as well. We realize that with communion this morning, that God's desire from the very beginning has been to draw all people back to himself. Part of Eden was walking with God in the cool of the afternoon. That's his desire for all of us. As I, it's desire for that to be restored. And so maybe the challenge and mission today is to ask yourself, what are you going to individually do about it? It's part of the reason we've been continually talking about next steps. What is the thing that God's calling you into to get back on mission, to get back on, on to, uh, into restoring Eden inside of your own soul? Maybe it's something like what Andy expressed this morning. Just start listening to Genesis and see what God has to say to you. You can pick a different book too, whatever works. Maybe it's refocused on prayer. How do I talk to God again? I don't know. Maybe it is joining something like a men's or women's group so that we can create a community in which you guys, we, we can wrestle with these things together. I don't know. Maybe it's letting go of something you've been holding on to, but you know it's bad for you. 
Maybe it's restoring a relationship with someone uh, that, that's strained or with a family member. I don't know. But the point of this Christmas season is the realization that God has called us into something greater. He's called us into this mission of changing individual lives in the world all around us, which is why I'm so glad we get to do extra communion today. Because just like the Passover was supposed to reset Israel into one, helping them remember who they are. We were slaves in Egypt. We were powerless. And God met us in that space, brought us out of the most powerful nation on earth in order to call us into this mission to change the world. At communion, it's the same. That while we were still sinners, while we are still broken, while we still realize that we're filled with, with, with shame and hurt and all of those things, while we were in that space, the body was broken and the blood was shed so that we can remember that each day we have also been blessed with the Holy Spirit in order to change the world. So I encourage you this morning that as you come to the table, let it be a reset for you in that way. Let it be a space in which you realize that no matter what you've been through, God, Jesus loved you enough to give himself for you, both his body and his blood. That in that brokenness is the space where we begin to understand how, that on our own, sure, we're not going to be able to change the world in that way, but through the power of the Spirit, Egypt was nothing, and neither is the culture that we find ourselves in. And so in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come forward, to come to the table. Because communion is the space in which we declare that sin is no longer our master. It's a space that says that we have been renewed and restored to change this world and make it look a little bit more like heaven than hell. And so this morning, if you... <clears throat> If this morning, if you want to accept that gift in your life, the gift that Jesus has offered to all of us, I want to invite you to then join us at the table. <clears throat> if it's not, then you feel free to stay seated. Because in the book of Colossians, Paul talks about it this way. He says, In this gathering there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, or Christ is all and is in all. Here's that parallel language we saw in 1 Peter as well. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since members of one body, you were called to peace. You can see in those words from Paul that the mission remains the same. Now hear these words from Luke. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat the Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, for I tell you that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it and said, Take and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. At the Passover meal, he takes bread, a practice they've been practicing for 1,500 years. And he said, this, bread, this, this unleavened bread was to remind you of your powerlessness in Egypt. He says, but now... 
It's to remind you of while you were powerless to sin, my body was broken for you. He says, when you eat it, remember and believe. He does the same with the cup. He says, it's a sign of a new covenant, a new testament, in which the mission will remain the same. But my blood shed for you opens the door for the indwelling of the Spirit, for God to live in us so the mission that he was given to Israel can be carried out through us. So he says, when you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just come before you today realizing that we play a part in a story that's being told for thousands of years. That from the very beginning, your desire was to call us back to yourself. That you have never given up on us. That through failure of humanity over and over and over and over again, you, just, you, keep, you kept meeting us where we were. Culminating into the space wall that while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, you said, if, it, if, it, if what it takes is for me to come and give myself for them, I will. Lord, help us to never lose sight of that. To not become puffed up in our own desire to be the gods of our own lives, but instead to humbly realize what your sacrifice means for each of us. And finally, God, we pray that in the midst of that reminder, the reminder that our shame and guilt is washed away, that we've been then also called to a mission. A mission to restore Eden here on earth. We know we'll do it imperfectly, but Lord, please give us wisdom and direction and guidance to become a place that looks more like heaven than hell. Give us wisdom on how to care for the, the communities around us, whether it be our families or our neighbors or, the, or Granville or Michigan, or the United States, or the world, whatever it may be, Lord, give us vision to share the good news that each of us has received with those we come in contact with. Amen.